Hello and welcome to Hellas for Hyphenates for September 2018. I am your host, uh, writer, hyphen, director, hyphen. I'm in London. What the heck am I doing here? Paul Anthony Nelson. And uh, my co-host is... So Mayer, writer, hyphen. I'm not in Melbourne uh, because hyphen, I am Agnes Wilder's second favourite cat. Viewers, viewers, listeners, you can't see it, uh, but So's shirt is perfectly coordinated with the frontage of Agnes Varda's house, which I've actually now been in front of and stalkily peered in the windows of. (laughs) Because Paul is on his grand tour of the cinemas of Europe. (laughs) Welcome to the VFI uh, in London, where 75% of Hyphenate's hosts have now stood, um, as 75% of Hyphenate's hosts have also uh, been to the Melbourne International Film Festival. So we're aiming for 100%, 100% for episode 200, right? <laughs> we need to lift our game. Come on, we're almost there. So uh, today, um, you'll be wondering why we've taken over the show. Yeah, and weren't Lee and Rochelle meant to be here? Oh, did you not? Did you not call them? Did you not? Am I not on the WhatsApp oh. group? We left the show, that's oh, right. Oh, that's... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so didn't this is we don't, this is so embarrassing. This is such an elaborate prank on their part. So they've lured us all the way to London. Is this for leaving? Is this because Lee's annoyed this is, at us this for is leaving? Lee's annoyed at us for leaving. They've lured us all the way to London. We've met up at the BFI. Paul is like about to get on a flight back to Melbourne. Told us that we're doing the show here live at the BFI uh, in front of fantastic posters of uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Loneliness and long distance runner. You cannot get more British. No. And literally, Albert Finney is shaping up to me like he's going to punch my head in in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, how does it feel to be back on Hellas for Hyphenates, sir? Uh, abstract, <laughs> but exciting. You know, episode 100. It is. It's, uh, that's a, you know, a century uh, of episodes, century of cinema. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, um, a century of Takashi Miike films, if we just wait 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> About one Jack Rivette film. <laughs> um, you know, it, Lee and I um, managed to coincide together in London for a few episodes before I'm sure no one noticed we were recording them long distance, <laughs> occasionally across three uh, three continents. And I recorded Jennifer Reader talking about Alison Anders here in, in one great coincidence. So the BFI has already played a, a small role and it feels nice to be back here to remember some of that history do you have any reminiscences of uh, of, of things you've missed things you've discovered on hyphenates things that hyphenates made you discover about yourself so i certainly discovered a lot about australian cinema mm-hmm. that was one of the the big thrills of it was feeling the internationalism of, of film culture and some of that was familiar like making all the connections around peter weir and then some of it was just completely new to me including like just getting to meet and hang out with and chat to a lot of the guests, whether they were from the US or Canada or Australia, um, that was, I think, part of the charm. You really do start to realise that cinema is this this international enterprise. And I don't know if you've felt that sort of coming over to Europe and if, in meeting familiar friends, in a sense, like filmmakers you've talked about on Hyphenates, um, guests other hosts. <laughs> <laughs> we do basically rule the world now. Hell is for hyphen. It is a global cinema community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, staying in Paris for three weeks and having a, no, 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 a no, cinema... No, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> a cinema literally up every uh, up every small street. I'm and not like not two minutes ago, a gentleman just walked past holding a stack of film cans. Shoot up. <laughs> It's literally perfectly timed, um, but yes, no, I, I miss I miss having the excuse to watch an entire filmmaker's filmography in a month, and and now it's just like I have work to do. There's no other reasons other than recording a podcast. I have no excuse anymore. Um, but yeah, look again, discovering filmmaking, you know, talking to guests and hearing their enthusiasm, and and looking into filmographies I would never have considered researching. Um, that I really miss. But um, I went off and made a film and uh that is hopefully coming out on this side of the world at some point very very soon via vod great what's the title of the film the title is called trench uh and yes uh view uh listeners of the show uh pro- probably heard me talk about it when we're about to get it up but it's been lovely to to um to visit paris and visit london and see uh get a, a a, a, an international perspective on, on, on cinema history and just feel that history around you and, you know, to stand outside Annie's father's, you know, studio and just be in awe of her creativity um, has been wonderful. And to meet Hyphenate's hosts. Yeah. I now have a whole set. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, Rochelle. It's on you to uh, come to London for the next big anniversary. But I think it's probably time. You think? You think to go to the the real genuine one and only episode one hundred, which Paul and I have been so cruelly shut out of by being given the wrong place to be. So to all of those of you who were lucky enough to be in the audience for the live recording, and to those of you listening now, we're going to go back to episode 100 of Hellas for Hyphenates, recorded in front of a live audience at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, and we are not miffed at all. Not even a little bit. Good afternoon, my name is Thomas Caldwell, and I'm the programmer at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Today's event is being held on the traditional lands of the Boon Warring and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation people, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the elders from other communities who may be here today. Welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates, episode 100, a Miff Talks event. This year, the Miff Talks program is presented by The Age. For more information on other events, please visit miff.com.au slash talks. Miff is thrilled to be hosting this special live recording of Hell is for Hyphenate's 100th episode. It's a podcast I have a lot of fondness for, and it brings me great pleasure to now hand you over to the show's hosts. Thank you, and thank you, Thomas. Um, so before we get started, just a quick show of hands if you've never heard the show before. Okay, that, that seems uh, in line with our listener numbers, but thank you, thank you for your honesty. Uh, all right, I'll give you a quick previously on. The year was 2010. It was a time when you could be a white, straight man and tell people you had a podcast without it being the punchline to a tweet. Um, I miss those days. But I was basically interviewing a lot of uh, filmmakers and actors and uh, discovered that they would get very excited when they started talking about things that they liked rather than things that they made. For example, a big fan of Danny Boyle's films is possibly going to be more passionate talking about 
the films of Danny Boyle than Danny Boyle himself. But if you get Danny Boyle talking about Martin Scorsese, then he's really going to light up based on a true story. So I thought, okay, this is a good premise for a show. And so we started doing it month by month. We had Edgar Wright talking about the films of George Miller. We've had Lynn Shelton talking about Claire Denis. Any Call Me By Your Name fans, we had Luca Guadagnino talking about the films of Maurice Pialat. Uh, we've had a whole host of really interesting people talking about other really interesting people. And, uh, yeah, the archives are there if you want to delve back into them. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So we thought we would uh, celebrate our 100th show in front of you fine people. And uh, so let's get into it. I am writer hyphen host hyphen 99 directors but Lou Bitch ain't one, Lee Zachariah, and with me here is my co-host. I'm Rochelle, uh, I'm film critic hyphen writer hyphen, I forgot to make a joke up for this particular uh, part of the podcast, Rochelle Semenovich, and uh, I'm going to introduce our special guest for our 100th episode, Greg McLean who is the writer and film director best known for the two Wolf Creek films and the recent Wolf Creek TV series for Stan. He's responsible then for creating the unforgettable and uniquely Australian outback boogeyman Mick Taylor, who exemplifies the most sinister aspects of the Australian bushman archetype. Greg's other films have included The Crocodile Horror of Rogue in 2007, The Dark Horror Comedy of the Belko Experiment in 2016, and last year's MIF opening night film, Jungle, starring Daniel Radcliffe and based on Yossi Ginsberg's true survival story. After training as a fine artist specialising in painting, Greg went on to attend NIDA, completing a graduate diploma in directing. You can interrupt me anywhere where I'm wrong, Greg. He worked in theatre with the likes of Neil Armfield and Baz Luhrmann and was the director of Oz Opera, the Australian opera's touring arm, directing their first production of Mozart's The Magic Flute. Greg directed many theatrical productions, award-winning short films and TV commercials before making his first feature, Wolf Creek, in 2005, for which he was nominated for a camera door at Cannes. As well as making his own films, Greg has executive produced Patrick Hughes' Western Red Hill and Justin Dix's Crawl Space. According to IMDb, he is part of the unofficial splat pack of directors making brutally violent films along with the likes of Eli Roth, Lee Whannell, James Wan and Rob Zombie. And I'm not sure whether you really wanted me to include that, but thank you for uh, indulging me. Please welcome Greg to Hell is for Hyphenate's 100th episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's an honour. Uh, this is really exciting for me to be part of this. 100, 100, that's a big deal. It's a, uh, you know, a century. It's very cool to be part of this. Um, it is. We before. love a big round number here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. Do you like the splat pack? Do you like being part of a splat pack? I don't know. I mean, it, it's a bit weird because it's something that a journalist, I think, at a British film festival coined talking about a bunch of different filmmakers from different parts of the world who happened to make, you know, 70s referencing horror films at a particular time. I don't know how I feel about it. It's a bit of a joke. Between, like I know some of those directors and we sort of joke about it like, did you know we're supposed to be part of this thing called the Splat Pack? Um, it's, it's a thing of its time, I think. You're pretty much the last uh, film collective that can... Because there are no rhymes left. We've had the Brat Pack. We've had uh, the Frat Pack in the 2000s. What's the Frat Pack? Uh, the Frat Pack is like Will Ferrell and all of his right. friends. Right. Uh, and I think we've pretty much can hit I all the rhymes Can I change packs? Now. Can I go to the Brat Pack? 
Yeah, sure. Is the Brat Pack Scorsese in those guys? I believe uh, they're pretty strict about uh, immigrants. Right. Uh, I can't, retro- I can't yeah. retroactively pack myself. No, no. I can't unpack it. Okay. Except the pack into which you were born. Right. Now, to, uh, to your filmmaker that you have picked to talk about on the show, yes. it has been uh, widely talked about in our social media and publicity materials, but nevertheless, I'm very excited to learn who have you chosen to talk about on the show. Ridley Scott. Wonderful. Really, Scott, the great, the, the master, the genius, the, the cinematic, you know, benchmark of so many, you know, and inspiration for so many directors as well. Mm. Um, you know, he's just one of my, you know, personally just a filmmaker that I have been very much inspired by. You know, he's made some of my favourite films of all time and made two other films that made me want to be a filmmaker. Um, so can't wait to geek out about Kingdom him. of Heaven and Exodus. Uh, <laughs> Thumb and Louise and Magic Men. Perfect. <laughs> no, all right, well, for those unfamiliar with... Ridley Scott. I'm sure you've seen a couple of his films, but here's a quick primer. Early in the 20th century, the Elizabeth and Francis Scott Corporation advanced child-rearing evolution into the Nexus phase of being virtually identical to a non-director known as a Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott was superior in strength and ability and at least equal in intelligence to the generic filmmakers who came before. After graduating art school, Ridley became a designer for the BBC before directing television and commercials for brands like Hovis and Chanel. Following the opening trio of feature films The Duelists, Alien and Blade Runner, Ridley would go on to direct Legend, Someone to Watch Over Me, Black Rain, Thelma and Louise, 1492, The Conquest of Paradise, White Squall, G.I. Jane, Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Man, Kingdom of Heaven, A Good Yig, American Gangster, Body of Liars, Robin Hood, Prometheus, The Counselor, Exodus, Gods and Kings, The Martian, Alien Covenant and All the Money in the World. This was not called execution. That would be an objectively strange term for filmmaking. It was called I Have No Bloody Plans for Retirement. No, stop it. This is no. It's getting silly now. Stop it. That is uh, that is How right. awesome. Is that video, by the way? That's cool. Yeah, I had nothing to do on Wednesday, which is uh, why that exists. Um, so, in 2016, roughly the same time that a young Roy Batty was being activated, look it up. Ridley told the American Cinematheque that the idea of retirement is unthinkable, and you can tell that from the opening crawl. If you look at his films, from 97, sorry, from 1977 to 1997, he made 10 films. From 2000 to 2017, he has made 15 films. He's getting faster as he gets older. I think he's going to reach some sort of event horizon soon. Um, there's no question there. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. No, no he, I think he's, um, you know, he's a, you know, someone I think who... If, if your second, well, second film is Alien and your next film is Blade Runner... What do you do after that? Like, I think, you know, it's like, I think now he's kind of at a point where he's obviously reaching back into those original films mm-hmm. after doing all ki- every kind of genre and re-examining, and I think this is something we were talking about a little bit before, about that notion of a film, he must be 70-something, 70-something now? I he's don't 80. know. He's 80. Just, he's, yeah, 80. Yeah, he's 80. 80 now. Good God. Um, you know, it's interesting to see someone who's made these, you know, seminal films that's really uh, made such an impact on popular culture but then after this, you know, very, very vast career, coming back to those and re-examining those initial themes and initial visual ideas as well. And uh, it's fascinating seeing the new Alien films, the new Blade Runner, and, you know, how that kind of works back into an artist re-examining their own themes and ideas. And they're still kind of the same themes in some sort of weird way. Mm. Um, but, you know, look, you know, you see video... You watch him if interviewed, if anyone's interested to watch his interviews and stuff, and he's... Um, 
He's so, so sharp and so brilliant and so clever and so, you know, and he's obviously aware of time. He's aware of the fact that his legacy is, um, he can't go on forever and you would probably want to just make all the films you ever wanted to make as fast as you can when you get to that point where you can make films. You can just keep making film after film after film. So what was, tell me about the Greg McLean, Ridley Scott origin. What, what won you over? What hooked you in? What made you a fan? Um, this is an unusual story. Um, I grew up on a farmhouse in out of Bendigo, which is a small country town, you know, out of Melbourne, as people know. Um, and uh, we we didn't really have a TV and stuff. And uh, occasionally, someone would go into town and see a movie, which was a big thing. And I was a, a smaller kid, and there were older kids. One of the older kids had gone into into town, which was a big thing, to see a movie. And um, and my brother came back, and me and my sister and a few of the others sat around as he came back and had seen something and told us what he saw. And he described this thing in such riveting detail, I felt like I was watching the film. So when I was very, very young, I saw Alien without seeing it by someone else's second-hand description of what he'd seen. Because what it did to him was so powerful and so fucking crazy. He told me every shot that he'd seen in this film. Like, and then this thing and this thing. and told me the whole story. And this was, you know, my brother was not, you know, a storyteller by any means, but, the, but what struck me and what, what what's interesting now is thinking back on my first experience with Ridley Scott was this, someone had made, made the piece of communication so powerful, someone could come back and describe it with, because they'd been moved so powerfully emotionally by it that they transferred it to me verbally that I felt like I'd seen the film. So when I saw the film, I was like, oh, okay, there's that, there's that, there's that, there's that. Wow. So okay. I saw Alien before I saw it, probably 10 years before I saw the film. And then at the same time, um, this was, you know, when would Alien came out, 1978? I think 79. 79. Okay, so there was a period there. So when that film was first coming out, when I was growing up, they were also playing the ad for it on television. So basically, you know, when you're a kid and you saw certain things on television that were terrifying to you and that just stuck into your brain and just basically scared the crap out of you. I still remember seeing the commercial for Alien on television on BCV8 in Bendigo and just be going, I don't know what that is, but my brain is going to mush with fear. And I still remember seeing it and hearing it and every single thing about it. And then eventually later I saw the film and was blown away by it. And it you know, really inspired me in terms of... Um, I mean, what I found fascinating was that the abstract idea that a bunch of pictures put together by someone and sounds... And some people doing things can make people react a particular way. So in a very abstract way, I was really interested in the idea of what films can do. And that happened to be a horror film, but it can be any film. It doesn't matter what it is. But that, that struck me because I was very impressed with that concept of, you know, art can do things. And I went to art school, as you said. So my first, you know, years of my, you know, education was trying to be an artist and trying to make a picture that impacts people. And then you see a film that does things to people and you go, oh, well, it's doing something pretty basic. We're just scaring the shit out of people, but it's still hard to do that. So maybe I'll do that. And then that's how I ended up gravitating, I think, towards the horror films and Wolf Creek and et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of Roy Batty in Mick Taylor. Was that... Am I just reading into it? Because I've you seen things stuff? you people wouldn't believe <laughs> in the outback. <laughs> I'll tell John that. Yeah, please do. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing the other film, other than Alien, was Blade Runner. I think right. is that a safe bet? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, and and you know, I I that was again a film that people were talking about. Um, 
you know, when that film came out, everyone was talking about it. I didn't. I always see things much later than everyone else sees things. I always come about five years behind popular culture, sometimes ten. Um, and uh, I remember people talking about it, and people in I was in art school, so arty people all talking about this thing as really passionately as if it was doing something. And I think what people were responding to was seeing a vision that was unique, a unique combination of elements that hadn't been seen before. And they were seeing a detective story and a noir film, but a science fiction version of that with, you know, uh, you know, androids, which the combination of elements was an amazing thing. So people were, and people in the art world, like in painting, everyone was talking about the visuals. Every image was like a painting. It was just so lush and so gorgeous and, and did something amazing. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, it, it blew my mind out. I was like, you know, the way that it... Um, you know, we were saying before, you could, you could write an essay on every single image because every image is so full of depth and story and meaning and, um, and consideration. So aesthetically, that, that to me was the thing where you realise what great film can be and what great directors can be when they control a story and control a world and create a world. And that was very exciting and still is. I, saw, I watched it again the other day and I was just like, yep, it's an amazing masterpiece. So... At what point did you identify Ridley Scott as, as a director? Because there's always that point at which you start watching films and you start working out what a director is and that that same director has made many films that I love. And at what point did you figure out he was the guy behind these films and then start following everything else he made? I think, I think, from, the first, like I think from the first film, uh, I probably logged a lot of things in that film. Like I think filmmakers unconsciously log the things that... Um, that impress him or her and they just sit in you somewhere and then you find yourself unconsciously stealing them or regurgitating them through your own lens later. And I constantly find myself, and not just Ridley Scott but other filmmakers, you, the things that really do it to you, you kind of end up going, God, you look back at it, you say, oh, that's, I took that from there or I was inspired by that or I don't know why I did that but I was actually trying to get towards something that really impressed me. Um, but I think, you know, probably th- those two films, from that point on, I really... I could see there was a complexity to the... Um, a sophistication to what the storyteller was doing. And it, and it had to be sophisticated to get that kind of reaction from people. Um, and then it was, you know, I was really interested in trying to work out how people did that. You know, how do you um, have the right combination of uh, con- the content being the story and the form that's separate to that story and the choices a filmmaker makes to do something to the audience. And all those choices are made to manipulate, manipulate you to think something or feel something. And those films very specifically do that. And they're very different things they're doing. One's about, you know, pure terror and creating a sense of believability in order to create that sense of um, connection. The second film is much more about an intellectual idea of what is it to be human and the future being the past and how the past appears in the future and human memory and all kinds of interesting ideas like that. So the different ideas, but um, what's impressive, I think, was the, you know, seeing someone dive into those big things. And as a filmmaker, you want to go, you know, how do people do that? How do the, how does, what do they do to actually, you know, use those tools to, you know, unpack, you know, those big ideas? Just um, watching some of Ridley Scott on um, YouTube being interviewed, he talked about his background in advertising and the fact that he had to communicate in 30 seconds and make people feel something very quickly. Right. And, I mean, he didn't make his first film till he was, like, 38 or something like that. Right. So he had this history of, um, you know, being very effective at yeah. eliciting emotion. Mm. And um, I wonder if 
you know, that's something that you have experienced through, you know, through making ads yourself? Um, yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, you have, you know, 30, 15 seconds, 20 seconds a minute to tell a story and to create a reaction. Mm. So you do learn to um, think about the, what's essential. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think it is that thing about, you know, it's always easier to be, um, easier to be complex than it is to be simple. It's actually very, very, very difficult to be very simple and very precise. And, you know, great filmmakers, I think... Uh, find a way to talk about complex things in a very pure way that as you know it's a, you find a way to visually describe something that's complicated in a simple way that becomes universal so beyond language and beyond culture you can understand a concept through purely pictures mm. um, and I think the great storytellers do that and the great filmmakers do that but I think you know really Scott is the, you know he, he was an, he was at art school he was an artist he was mm. doing he was going to be a painter and he he still draws, he still storyboards every shot that he does and his first language is visual. Mm. So sound is secondary. And I was watching something with him the other day and he was talking about, he was driving, you know, when he gets up, and this is his more recent films, I'm not sure about the films in the early, early days, but he was describing going to set, I think it was for Alien Covenant, basically he will get in his car and his car to set is, is set up as an office. He will storyboard the day's material and storyboard it very well like the non-stick figures he will draw the day's material arrive give it to his first AD and to his DP and the producer and they'll go through it and, and he basically says any questions and then basically that's the day because he's essentially you know with that level of skill he basically has seen the entire film uh, and trained himself to be able to develop that skill of seeing the entire film uh, ahead of time and then he's just basically, you know, capturing it. And that's just one way of working and everyone has their own way and people do the opposite thing and also get great results. But that's an interesting way. And I guess I relate to that because that's I, I do a similar thing where I, I'm, my first language is visual as well. I failed English. I dropped out of high school at year 10. I wasn't very good academically, but I could draw really, really well. So, it, you know, I, I'm similar in the sense that I basically destroy what everything I do. I, you know, use visuals uh, to tell story as opposed to coming from the literary... I'm not from that, that world or that approach to it. It almost feels like a Ridley Scott ad. Like, he, he drives up, throws some pages at a first AD and goes, any questions? <laughs> Cut to title card. Yeah. He, he actually made the 1984 Apple ad, that famous... Which I, I don't know how that piece of trivia eluded me until a few days ago. That famous one of the... You know, the, the girl, girl the, the girl running, the girl runs, yeah. throws the thing into the stream. I, I, yeah. I think it's a hundred. It's like hundreds of um, for people who haven't seen it. It's hundreds of you know, shaven-headed, grey-dressed, drab uh, people in a huge auditorium, uh, staring at a big monitor that basically replicates the George Orwell's 1984. And it's about a kind of mindless, conformist society. And a, a quite gorgeous, I think, athletic-looking blonde woman mm. runs through the middle of them, and she's got a big hammer which she swings and throws into the screen and destroys it and frees everyone with the power of Apple computers. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, hasn't that stuck. That worked. Yes, thank you. Thank, we, we love Apple. <clears throat> um, he, uh, my, my, actually, my favourite fact about Ridley Scott, which is revealing my other interests, uh, is that he was working for the BBC as a designer... And he was assigned one day to uh, a show that had just begun called Doctor Who, and he was asked to design the Daleks. And at the last minute, a, uh, a scheduling thing meant he got taken off it and someone else stepped in, his colleague stepped in. But that's a, that's a terrifying... Gl- well, not terrifying, I don't know why I describe everything that way. That's a glimpse into an alternate future wow. where Ridley Scott designed the Daleks. Interesting. Yeah. I'd like to see his design for them. 
I suspect it wouldn't have been as good as the current one. I no, mean, I, as great as it is, so I just I think the current one is whoever I don't know who designed the current Dalek, but there's it's a you know Raymond Cusick. Probably that's what I was going to say. Um, Someone like I that. I was on the tip of my tongue. Um, yeah, but I, I mean that, that design—it's a flawless mm. design. Yeah, yeah. So those. Uh, that design eye really comes in from Alien and Blade Runner, and we will get on to the other films soon, but he, he's so good at creating a world, and he's so good at... I mean, every production element in those two films introduces us to the world in the least in-your-face way possible. There's no... I mean, yes, there was a title card before uh, Blade Runner, but everything we need to know about the world comes through action and design and people talking and... He's so good at every element of, you know, he's able to direct the actors in a naturalistic way that makes it feel like a Robert Altman film, but he does the horror like he's John Carpenter, and, but he's also create, got, that, he's got that design eye where he creates this incredible world, unlike anything we've seen in cinema up until that point, at least. And again, not formed in the frame of, frame of a question, yeah. just an observation. No, but, but I, think, I think the interesting thing there is basically the, um, you know, and is that notion of basically, and this is something that really Scott talks about as being the basic challenge of a filmmaker, is, you know, creating a believable world. And, and that, 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 it doesn't matter what genre you're doing, but the basic task of a filmmaker is, is creating that believable world, whether it's a science fiction story or, a, or a, whatever it's set, whatever period, that's the basic challenge. And that's the, the, the really big challenge. And I think that his um, understanding of that thing, and you look at his filmography... And I can't think of another filmmaker, aside from Stanley Kubrick, but with less films, and maybe Spielberg because he's done everything, that has basically touched every single period or genre or idea or... I mean, if you think about the time periods in those films that he's done, Ancient Rome, uh, multiple mm. science fiction stories, many present-day stories, uh, period war films, um, it's, it's done it all. The, the, the kind of... It's almost like the... Um, the, it's almost like the challenge for him seems to be seeking out what's a, what's a world that exists that I haven't done before and how can I do that in a really interesting way and do it, you know, 100%, do it in a, in a kind of incredibly cinematic way. Um, and they're really big worlds too, aren't they? I mean, these are just like massive sets with so many extras. I mean, they're not, they're not intimate mm. visions really. I, I don't know, what's the most intimate film that... I think Mastic Men is sort of seen as his most intimate film, which yeah. basically is a film that... Um, I, it's one I actually have not seen. I'm very sorry to admit that. Um, but uh, I know enough about it to know that it's, it's regarded as his, a film that basically is the most unridly Scott film because it's fundamentally it's a character piece with no real action per se, but it's a character drama. Um, and it's, a, you know, it's spoken about as a film that's just... Uh, the, the unridly Scott, Ridley Scott movie. The Council as well, I say, was, is, is also a drama. Yeah. It doesn't have action in the traditional sense, but it's still creating a particular environment. Um, still big in its, its scale. A, and yeah, it's a big, it's a large-looking, beautiful production. Yeah, he does, I mean, even The Counselor, which is ostensibly set in our world, still feels like this weird parallel world. That's uh, crazy, that film. It is. I yeah. hated it the first time I saw it. And re-watching it for this, I was like, this is great. What, am I, what was I talking about? And I think, I mean, we're, we're going to get into his re-edits later, but it is a slightly different cut for home video. Oh, really? And I wonder, yeah, he just... And he didn't do much to, to that one, apparently. He just reordered the scenes a bit, moved it around, and either I was just in a better mood, more receptive to the batshit craziness of that film, or it made all the difference. Right. But, um, yeah, there are a few like that. And, yeah, Thelma and Louise, just jumping... Uh, I was going to say Ford, but we're talking about The Counselor, so jumping to the middle. Thelma and Louise is another character-based film, not creating massive science fiction world. Very successful 
film still really holds up. And he's got that sort of stripped-back approach, that, and it's the exact same approach that made Alien work, made you care about the characters and believe them. And, you know, it's, it's iconic for a reason, I think. Mm. That's an interesting movie. And, um, I mean, is it, hands up who hasn't seen Thurman Louise. Has anyone not seen it? All right, two, let's two, play three, it now. Three people? No. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting film because it, um, it had such an impact as a film in culture, just generally. Mm. And I think, um, you know, as a, as a massive, obviously clearly feminist film made by a very male action director and a blockbuster budget for this, you know, extraordinary story. Uh, it's, it, it's interesting in his filmography and you kind of wonder what, was, what he was thinking by saying, that's the next movie I'm going to make. I don't but, think he wanted to make it. Right. I think he was shopping the script around for someone he knew, and he, no, none of right. the male directors that he was I approaching think I wanted story, yeah. to do it. Right. And he said, "Well, I'll do it." Right. And um, yeah, it's watching it now. It's really, it's really still very relevant, and it's yeah. obviously still a really angry film, mm. and um, it's got a lot to say in the current moment. Yeah. And um, it's kind of depressing, really. That we're still there, yeah. 1991 to now. It's the same issues, just men behaving terribly, and mm. these women who are just. I think um, Scott said something about it's about women having their say and being heard. And <laughs> then they drive a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. no future for them. <laughs> well, that's I, yeah. I guess it, it, it has a view that it does, but I wonder if it's time for him to revisit that and make a sequel to. Uh, I know it's sacrilegious to say that, but it seems he's revisiting Alien and Blade Runner as a sequel to. Did the car land? He would, yeah. <laughs> a parachute falls out of the back of the... This thing writes itself. So there are... <laughs> there are <laughs> we send a note to really? Yeah. We've got a great idea for... Oh, I'm sending him a, a recording. Thelma Louise <laughs> sequel. Thelma and Louise. It's the worst and... idea of all time. Written by two dudes. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be really good. Uh, so we are skipping over a few films. We didn't mention his first film, The Duelists. He followed up Blade Runner with Legend, a very you know with Tom Cruise, a very fantasy-heavy film, and then he made uh, a couple of films in the '80s: Someone to Watch Over Me with uh, Tom Berenger, and Black Rain. And these are—it's it, interesting that his filmography has sort of escaped these sort of obscure titles, which don't work. But I thought it was interesting watching Black Rain, which is just about a couple of uh, cops who are transporting a prisoner to Japan, and. I was watching it going, God, the, the Japanese aesthetic feels very similar to Blade Runner, which is obvious, but the fact that the, there are scenes where Michael Douglas's detective notice sequins and examines them carefully like the scales in Blade Runner. And I was wondering if he thought, well, Blade Runner was... At that point, it was still considered a failure. It hadn't had its re-evaluation yet. I wondered if he was so invested in that story, he wanted to make it in the real world and see if, if he could make it work as a more traditional cop movie. Right. I don't know, but it, it, it's interesting to... Con- I hadn't made that comparison, but when you talk about it, you do think that basically it is a, it's a noir film in a kind of hyper-real environment, which is modern Japan, mm. with a detective chasing uh, various characters through the city underworld. It is kind of the same story in some ways. Interesting. I have yeah. to rewatch that with that with that frame. That, that I frame. wouldn't rewatch it. Right. I, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that. Uh, that's I, the wrong takeaway from what <laughs> okay, I said. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, then after Thelma and Louise, he gets into uh, Christopher Columbus' story with 1492, Conquest of Paradise, and White Squall and G.I. Jane. And I feel like G.I. Jane might be the point at which he starts really looking back at his 
filmography and starts to become very self-referential. Uh, partly because in G.I. Jane there are two girls in a bar named Thelma and Louise. Not partly, mostly because of that. Uh, where he's like, he starts to sort of, he's recognised his place in pop culture and is now referencing himself, which sort of comes to drive the rest of his career, the, the, the 21st century phase of his career. Were you still following him through that whole White Squall, G.I. Jane period? I've got to admit that was probably the period I sort of ducked out a little bit. Um, they're probably not my favourite favourites of his, of his films. Um, uh, I kind of reconnected again with Black Hawk Down, I think. I kind of, you know, in terms of the list there, what was the, after that, that three films, what was the next one that came out? Uh, oh, there was well, there was Gladiator in. Well, yeah, I think I think yeah, Gladiator was kind of that was. I guess you know, I don't love those movies, frankly. Yep. Um, and even though he's obviously a great technical genius, they're just films that I probably just you know, if they're on, I probably would watch something else. I don't love them, but um, Gladiator obviously is again one of those you know, iconic films like Thurman Louise, like Alien, like Blade Runner, that um, created an incredible world and it's kind of showed the kind of. Um, showed the expansiveness of his vision as a popular filmmaker and I think captured people's imagination is the key thing. Yeah, captured people's imagination by creating an amazing world that we hadn't seen before, it done in that way. Um, there'd been many, obviously, hundreds of Roman epics in the past and Hollywood's been you know, doing Roman stories forever, but you know, to see Rome realised in that way with such um, precision and detail and, and fascination for the, um, just the basic texture of that world... Uh, I think it really took, you know, people were enraptured with that film. As I, I mean, I, that film blew my mind. I was like, I couldn't, you know, it was strange. It was also great seeing Russell Crowe doing his very broad Aussie accent in the middle of this um, Roman epic as well. My name's Max. I will have my vengeance. It's like, what? What we do here now echoes in eternity. Yeah. That film? Uh, yeah. I love, love Russ. But that, it was, you know, it's, uh, but no, it's, it's again, I think that that's where I kind of tuned right back into. Um, you know, loving a film that he made in the same way that he loved his earlier films. Yeah. So how do how do you feel about that that later phase where he just gets into something happens post uh, Gladiator, uh, and he he's just like you know what I've time is running out I'm going to make a film a year, and some years if I'm particularly bored I'm going to make two. How are you following through this? Do you do you feel that uh, this is a good rate for someone like him to keep up? Well, I mean, Spielberg did a, did a similar thing. Like Spielberg, you know, a couple of years ago started doing, you know, he made Schindler's List and Jurassic Park at the, in the same year. And then he continued that kind of pace for the next four or five years of doing two major blockbusters at the same time. And his thinking was, well, when Howard Hawks was doing his films for Warners and RKO back in the 40s, um, they would do five films a year. So uh, why don't we... Why aren't directors now doing that? And because... There's lots of reasons why, but... Um, you know, films didn't used to cost a hundred million dollars, for example. But, um, but you know, it, I think he was saying, "Well, I'm a, I'm a studio filmmaker. I work for a studio. Why can't directors go and make more movies?" And I think it's a really healthy thing to do. And really, Scott's whole thing is basically you get good by doing. You learn by doing. Each challenge, you 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 might you might succeed at it, you might fail at it, but you you only get there by doing it. Um, and I think that's some of the frustrating thing of someone like Ridley Scott making, you know, if you, if you made Alien and Blade Runner as your first two, you know, out of the first three films you made, that was two of them, I think you kind of coast a bit. For a, you've got to coast a bit and say, well, can you ever make, and this will get us back to, you know, that notion of um, if you think, and obviously he's made, I think he's made probably four or five films that are as good or close or, you know, in the same league as those films. Mm. But those, those films kind of define culture and, def- and influence filmmakers in filmmaking 
in a way that uh, you know few people have. Um, and maybe it's partly because of the fact he was a complete outsider to the system and had no relationship to Hollywood other than being a fan of movies. But as a, as a British filmmaker, come, and a different, you know, obviously Australians and Brits have entirely different mentalities of Americans. It's a different mindset. So going into that system and, and thinking about different stories and seeing different things, um, I think that helped him, you know, succeed in that environment because he's not thinking like everyone else. He's very efficient in the way he makes films too. Like he, he right. prides himself on, on making films under budget on time and just like, you know, he's like a general of right. an army, isn't he? Right. Well, I, mean, I think the great example of that is um, they, had, they had recently made that film All the Money in the World and then the Kevin Spacey scandal hit mm. and he realised that the film would be uh, just wiped off the face of the earth. And he, I read this thing where it was basically saying I, didn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that to my partners who invested in the film, so I basically had to make a... They made a decision to, to reshoot that stuff. He month. promised them he could do, do the reshoots in nine days. He did all these extraordinary um, things that, 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 you know, only someone who kind of had the experience to know how to do it said, I know, I know the shots that I need, I know what I need to do it, we can do it, and we'll keep the same release date, don't change a thing, we're doing it. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty controversial decision to cut out a major actor of a movie, but um, with that kind of experience, I get, you know, obviously he worked out and did it. It's a, it's a pretty good movie. Have you guys seen that? I, I really like yeah. it, especially like re-watching it. Yeah. it. Yeah, I think it holds up really well. And it's such a great... Like, that move to just jump in and go, you know what, we're, we're just reshooting these scenes. It's like he's got the energy of a 20-year-old guerrilla film student. Like, he's just like, you know what, we're just doing it. Yeah. And I really love that. And I, I, I wonder how much of it, though, is to do with the politics of everything around Kevin Spacey and more to do with the fact that he actually did want Christopher Plummer originally. And the studio wanted a bigger name, so they forced him to go with melted Kevin Spacey. Uh, if you've seen the prosthetics in the trailers, wow, that was uh, a it, 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 it looks. I mean, you know, I, didn't, I don't know anything about it, except you know, I did see the trailer and my first thought was, wow, those prosthetics look not great. Uh, and, then, and then when I saw the movie and saw Christopher Plummer, I thought he was a, it's a fantastic performance and he's great in the film. Um, maybe, the, I mean, who knows? Maybe we can call him and find out. But it, you do think, well, maybe the prosthetics, maybe it was like a... If I had a way to get out of this, I'd, I'd do it. But I don't know. Maybe it is the fact that they didn't want to seek the movie because it would have. I was being affected by that scandal. Mm. Who knows? So, I, I really think of Ridley as a self-remade man. I think there is no director who has reworked their own films as often as he has. There are no less thin than uh, 183 versions of Blade Runner, I think, uh, including the director's cut that was not cut by the director. And the final cut, which I think time will make that a redundant title. I'm sure there'll be another edit coming down the pipe at some point. But it was around the time of Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, and the theatrical cut, no one liked. It came out in theatres. And then he re-edited it for DVDs. And director's cuts were nothing new. But it was something to do with, I think, the fact that home video was becoming this big thing. Everyone was... Uh, buying DVDs and special editions. And so there was a commercial incentive for studios to give the public something new. And so he cuts this, I don't even know what the running time was, three-plus hours, new edit of Kingdom of Heaven. And critics love it. And it becomes this thing that he uh, saved his film and he made a much better film in the edit suite. And a couple more director's cuts started coming out. And it got to this point where I'm, I'm sure I read some critics saying... This film isn't very good, but wait until the director's cut comes out on DVD. I'm sure that one will be good. So he gets a free pass from here on in. But um, 
Yeah, it is, it, it is quite interesting that there are so many alternate versions of his films. I think like the version of Blade Runner that I've got on Blu-ray has, I think, five different versions of the film. It's the US theatrical cut, the international theatrical cut, the work print, the director's cut, and the final cut. And I think... I think disc seven is just scans of stuff they had lying around the office. It's just like every piece of material shoved onto those discs. And I love it because, you know, for the completists among us, it's nice to have that point of comparison. But is there one that he... Which, which one does Ridley claim as his cut? Because I know that they had the problems of basically the studio wanting to have an explanatory voiceover over the movie mm. of Deckard, which he, I think he hated that idea yep. of, of explaining it. Which cut does he? Which cut is his actual cut? He does not care. He no. Oh no. He definitely. He owns the final cut, the oh, recent really? one that came out. Right. That is that is his all over. He uh, and I didn't realize until recently that the director's cut was at least according to him a, a producer's cut of sorts that they just called a director's cut, but that removed the voiceover. Um, that's my favorite one because I feel every every uh, revisitation of that film has stripped away the ambiguity around whether Deckard is. A replicant and the a replicant is that the replicant? Right? Yeah, that's the right film franchise. I'm getting them all mixed up. Uh, and whether he's a xenomorph, xenomorph. Yes, that's right. Whether he's Robin Hood, um, and the uh, my favourite version has been the one where he thinks he is, but doesn't know, because then it becomes a story about empathy rather than self-interest. Like, oh, I'm a replicant. Well, now I have a reason to care, and I thought that was quite telling. Watching his Exodus. Uh, his version of the Moses story, because he leans quite heavily on uh, on Moses being adopted royalty. And Christian Bale's Moses, we'll come back to that in a moment, uh, Christian Bale's Moses is very much complicit in the persecution of the Jews. And then he finds his membership card, and he's all up in our business. I'm like, cool it, Moses. Get back to your unicorn dreams. I'm getting my films mixed up. But, yeah, I think... I, I think there is that ambiguity that is missing or, the, or that feeling of empathy unless I have a stake. Right. His characters see they need that personal stake rather than that's happening to someone near me, I guess. Or... Right. In terms, of how, in terms of the new Blade Runner and the old Blade Runner and the, and the, the new film, mm. uh, and Ridley, did you, do you, do you aware of his comments about the new film after the film came out? He said it was too long. He said it was too long. <laughs> <laughs> it which again speaks to more cuts coming of that film. And it was a very long film. Um, this is 2049? Yeah. Which, you're right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he was fairly uh, you know, frank and honest in his assessment of the movie, mm. which you would have thought he would have, might have said that earlier than the, after the film was released. Yeah, he is a producer on it, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, so it's does. like you might have said that in the edit room rather than you know, slamming it in the press after the film's out. Well, I don't think he's someone who thinks that you need to stop giving notes once the film is out. I think right. like, that's just the first <laughs> there's, there's six more cuts. Yeah. There's six more cuts to come. Exactly. The right. next one will be even better. Right. Um, if I can uh, be really indulgent for a moment, uh, our very first episode of Hyphenates, coincidentally, we reviewed a new release film called Robin Hood. And... I went back and listened to it and remembered something I noticed at the time. Who here is familiar with the Richard Lester film Robin and Marion? Yep. Uh, in that film, it's basically a, a, about a retired Robin Hood uh, coming back from the Crusades. He's had all of his adventures and it's an old Robin Hood and an old Maid Marion and an old Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, in that film, Robin is played by 46-year-old Sean Connery. I think you know where I'm going with this. In Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, the young, vibrant, or, you know, yet-to-become Robin Hood is played by uh, 
fresh-faced newcomer, uh, Russell Crowe, 46 <laughs> years old. <laughs> I'm not age-shaming. I'm not saying that you know a 46-year-old can't become Robin Hood. It's just my favourite piece of film trivia. You love I that just stuff. Really Lee. love that. <laughs> They're looking good. They're looking good. Um, but he does. He loves his. Uh, he loves his myths and legends. He loves. Uh, you know, he's got Christopher Columbus, Gladiator, uh, even Hannibal. Hannibal is. You know, a, a. By the time he he makes the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, we all know who Hannibal the Cannibal is. And so he really plays with the, these pop culture icons um, and then starts to see his own work as pop culture, uh, you know, and, and with every right, you know, Alien is iconic. But it's interesting that he's the one who sees it that way. A few years ago, or actually many years ago, a friend of mine pitched me a film, said, how, how will this work? Well, think about it. A bunch of scavengers on a spaceship going around stripping other spaceships of their stuff, go onto this ship, they all start disappearing, and then you find out there's an alien on board. And the hook was, you don't know it's an alien film until the alien appears. So you just go into the space movie, and then, surprise, it's an alien film. I said, well, well that sounds great. Um, no studio will ever make an alien film without telling you it's an alien film first, because you have to be able to market it and sell to people, this great franchise is continuing, and this is an alien film. Uh, so feeling quite smug and superior about that comment, a few years later, Ridley makes Prometheus. And, of course, we all thought it was probably an alien film, but you don't actually know until you get to the point at which... Actually, it's the opening titles, which are identical to the alien opening titles, with the lines appearing, forming the words. So he kind of gave the game away there. But, yeah, what do you, what do you make of that, of him sequelizing, remaking, and sort of paying homage to himself? Um, to, uh well, uh, if you've got the material to, to cannibalise and re- reinvestigate, go for it. Um, but just going back a little bit to, um, to him, to myths and legends and fairy tales, and if you think about, you know, legend is about fairy tales. Uh, many of his films have mythological bases to them. Most of them are hero stories in one form or other. Um, some of them are anti-hero stories, like Simon Louise and Matchstick Man. But ultimately, I think that, um, you know, I think one of the skills of a popular... If you want to be a popular filmmaker, as in make commercial movies, is your skill to identify stories that move, move large amounts of people. And ultimately, that leads you towards mythology and fairy tale story structures. Um, and you can see it everywhere with, you know, what are Marvel films? But here, you know, they're all mythic tales. They're Greek myths and um, legends just in spandex. Like, mm. the, there's nothing new in any superhero film. Um, and I think, you know, filmmakers like, if you look at the films of the, the subjects that, you know, Ridley Scott has drawn to or Chris Nolan or people, you know, George Miller or Guillermo del Toro, they're all diving in the same pool of material, um, which is basically trying to find primary story ideas that will connect with human beings all over the planet. And what cinematically can I do to make that a new way of telling the same story? Jaws is um, Moby Dick. I mean, which every, every single story, the big film that you talk about, you'll probably be able to find a mythological basis or a fairy tale basis to every single one of those stories. Um, but I think Ridley is self-aware, you know, look at the film choice, he's very self-aware of that concept that I want to find big universal characters and ideas to talk about because as a filmmaker, you get to do cool stuff. You get to create worlds and you get to move mass audiences if you deal with story in that way. Um, 
I'm not quite sure where I was going with that, but I want to say that. Um, the next thing I was going to talk about, what was the la- la- very last thing you said about, um, uh, about, about Prometheus? Yeah. Re- renewing it, going through his own material. I think, you know, um, it, you know it's, really Scott talks a lot about the fact that he was making a film and then Star Wars came out and he said, what am I doing, doing this piece of shit? I'm going to make a film like that. And so he's been striving to make a continuing franchise ever since that had the same impact as, as Star Wars. Alien has had an impact, but it's a different kind of impact. Um, and I think, re, you, know, you know, in the period we're in now where basically studios are spending so much money on films, if you have a connection to a franchise at that level and you can exploit that to get them to put $200 million into your bank to make a movie why wouldn't you then go back and re-explore mythology you've set up that studios want to invest in? That's something you can do. You get to go and play with all the new toys. You get to go and expand your franchise and keep doing it. It seems like an obvious thing to do, but I do think he's genuinely fascinated with the themes that were explored in the first Alien Blade Runner films, and I think that those themes are still really interesting. And I feel like you know Prometheus is a film for me. I love the film because I just loved being in that world. I thought the film was a bit boring and a bit whatever, but I, as a filmmaker and audience, I, was, I just loved seeing the... I, I was just enjoying seeing it rendered so well. Um, but uh, I know a lot of people hated the film. But I really loved Covenant. I thought Covenant was awesome because I thought it was a complete popcorn version of an earlier Alien film. And it knew what it was and was trying to have fun. And clearly someone had told him about a video game called Alien Isolation and said, hey, why don't you make it a horror film? The next one. And he's obviously gone, oh, let's do... I mean, it's... It's amazing because sometimes, you know, it's like um, George Lucas and the Star Wars prequels. Mm. How the fuck do you make the first Star Wars films and you make those pieces of shit? <laughs> um, like, what the fuck happened? And what happened was your point of view changes. So artists talk about what's important at the forefront of their life at the time. When George Lucas was making the first Star Wars, he was an outsider, couldn't get in, was being pushed back by the system and told, told but he didn't matter, didn't have a voice. And he thought, well, uh, what's my focus? I'll write a story about a little guy overcoming and de- beating the Empire. By the time he made this prequels, he was a billionaire. What's his m- most important priority in his mind every day? Taxation, because he's a billionaire. How do I save money off the IRS? What's the Star Wars prequels about? Trade federations. <laughs> How to save money. I mean, it's, it's insane. If you yeah, think yeah. about it in that perspective, it makes total sense of the way those films are like reading tax returns. Um, <laughs> But I think, I don't know why I'm talking about George Lucas, but, uh, but, the, um, but talking about filmmakers, I think I really, really clearly wanted to have a franchise in the same, with the same impact as mm. um, Star Wars and was impressed by the film as everyone was. And I think the, um, you know, mining the mythology is, is a great thing to do and um, I hope they make more of them. I just hope they remember their, their horror films because if you think about, you know, the, clearly the best alien film of all time is Alien. The second best, obviously, is Aliens. And then they're... They're, they're either, either shitty or okay from that point on. Mm. Um, but they work best as horror thriller films. They're all about horror and suspense. When they go into talking about the origin of the universe, it's like, do I, want to watch, do I want to watch an alien film to talk about the origin of the universe? Probably not. Well, that's just me, though. Sure. No, well, no, I'm, I think I'm a bit the same. I do. One thing I will say, like, I'm not a huge Prometheus and Covenant fan. They're okay. But... They really highlight, like for me, the difference between classic Ridley and new Ridley. Like it's the same recipe but a great new taste. Or a different recipe and a different taste. I should have thought like harder chicken about that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, comparing Alien and Prometheus to, to look at the two faces of Ridley is, is particularly useful. Um, the, the first Alien film is, is about motherhood, as is Aliens. Like very much 
the underlying theme is, is motherhood. Prometheus is very much about fatherhood. And it's about characters with daddy issues, trying to find the father of humanity, trying to deal with their own fathers, uh, uh, an android trying to figure out who his father is. The film is literally called Prometheus. Like, they're really, they're really underlying that. It's no mistake. And I like the fact that he's got these two sort of dueling themes. And that was, in itself, that's almost enough justification to reboot the franchise, I think. I think that's such a, a, a neat and, uh, and seductive theme uh, to, you know, hit reboot on the, whole, on the whole thing, even if it's a prequel and even if you know, you sort of have to come up with excuses as to why the technology looks better and why nobody remembers this happening and, you know, your classic prequel problems. Like, oh, everyone's brain got erased. Uh, right. Yeah, there was a, an amnesia bullet. But don't you think that Ridley Scott kind of loses um, some of his power a bit when he starts um, talking about heaven and hell and creation and evil and, I don't know, it sort of seems better when he's focused on the pure visceral... Um, thrills and horror of the situation at hand and when he tries to get a little bit mythological and philosophical, it's a bit hokey. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I I agree. I mean, in terms of, like, as a movie experience, it's it's certainly interesting to see people explore big ideas in a science fiction concept, but it feels like, like, for me personally, Blade Runner is a great place to explore the notion of what is human and what is not and what is the origin of life and what is the notion of the creator. I think that um, by making the Alien franchise about that concept, you're mixing the genres. Mm. Blade Runner is about that. Um, you know, Alien is about being terrified and out of control and the primal fear of something that's going to infect you and, and destroy you and is the opposite is, is an inhuman force and that's a terrifying idea. Um, and as a filmmaker, it's a great avenue to basically do something very, very powerful for an audience. And that's why I think sometimes it's good for other filmmakers to come into other people's franchises and tell them what they're doing and, 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 and try to help them essentialize what it's all about. Like, you know, I think that's still one of the reasons why J.J. Abrams is very good at um, coming into a franchise. It's, I mean, it's pretty amazing. If you think about someone like J.J. Abrams, he's coming to two giant pop culture phenomenons. Three. three. Mission Impossible. Okay, as well, so yeah. Mission Impossible, Star Wars, Star Trek. Mm. He's walked into them and said, okay, we need to reboot this thing. And, and what his genius is, is going into a franchise and say, what's the essence of this story? What's the essence of the franchise? What's it about? What are the elements that really motivated millions of fans around the world to get excited about this and buy the merchandise and watch the movies and do all the, do all the stuff we do? And that's a really particular talent. And it'd be interesting to see someone like that, not saying it him, but someone go into Alien and say, okay, really, it's not about... Prometheus, that's cool, but it's actually not about the origin of life. It's about scaring the living shit out of people. So let's make let's let's rework a, a franchise idea that basically gets into the essence of what the franchise actually is and why it became a franchise is because of that fact that um, it had those essential elements. It was truckers in space, uh, inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre, designed to scare the living shit out of people. And that, to me, is a really cool idea for, you know, I'd see another alien film like that. Not that I didn't love the other ones. Like, I, I just, you know, I just love the world, so I'm excited about even bad alien films. Mm. Um, but, well, there are plenty of those. <laughs> there are plenty of those. But it's interesting, though, that um, I feel like the video game, if anyone's into, you know, video games here, the video game on PS3 came out called Alien Isolation. Some people who were very obsessed with the world of Alien 
made a game that was a story. It was, I think it was Al, um, Alan Ripley's daughter went to a space station, and the graphics are incredible, the design is amazing, and they're referencing the lighting and design. You feel like you're in the original Alien film. These people obsessively recreated the world of the first Alien film and told a story in that world in a game, and it's as scary, if not scarier, than the first movie. It's amazing how the game works. It's using the same sound and atmosphere and stuff. That's interesting. I'd love to see those game makers be given the job of coming up with an Alien film yeah. and see what they come up with. He is, I, I think he's very good at creating a world, as we've established. I'm not so good at coming in when the world's already being created, because I think the fun stuff for him is, I assume, creating a world through action. And when he comes to do a new Alien film, or Hannibal, or even Robin Hood, where we've seen a million different versions of that, he's like, yeah, we've seen all these elements. And he, he's not on autopilot, but the things he's good at have already been done. But and when he comes into an original story, even if it's not a, a genre film, even if it's Thelma and Louise, or All the Money in the World, where there's an assumption that the audience knows absolutely nothing, that's when he's firing on all cylinders. And I, I think that's where his forte is. I think he should start a lot of franchises and then step away. It'd be interesting to try and find a... Um, if one had the power to, to, offer, to come up with three or four things for him to go and do next. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't do things that, like, you know, we just say, OK, we're really going to do this, this manga comic or this... He's never done a superhero film as well. I think he'd like to. I no, think... I, think he's a, I think he's anti-superhero. I think oh, he's really? like, I don't want to do people in capes. I think he realised that there are people who are doing it at such a high level that you inevitably will fail. If you can't, you know, mm. how do you compete against Infinity War or Black Panther? Or I mean, you know, it's hard. It's, it's a tricky one. As a, as a major filmmaker, if you, I mean, and it's part of, I mean, you know, Chris Nolan kind of is the high watermark with The Dark Knight. There's, there, there really has been, it's the... It's the the movie masterpiece is a Citizen Kane of superhero films, if you will. Yeah. Um, if you're going to go into that arena, that's what you're up against. And if you don't have an idea better than that, you'd, and you have a reputation as one of these great filmmakers, you'd probably want to stay away from it because you could come out looking pretty silly. I mean, George Miller was going to do Justice League many years ago, yeah. uh, which would be interesting to see George Miller's Justice League. Um, and he was totally vibing on the Greek mythology aspect of the whole thing and, you know, would have been interesting to see his vision for it. Maybe would have, we wouldn't have had all those shitty DC films if he started off in a different way, as opposed to being the Zack, Zack Snyder fest of, uh, you know, the Supermans and all the Batman versus Superman shit. Yeah, well, he stepped away from... Uh, George Miller's idea was to step away from all the other continuity anyway. Maybe if Ridley got something like that, he might have a bit more fun with it. But again, because we're so familiar with the tropes, I'm wondering... Would he would he actually be bored by it by by telling stories about characters we're all so familiar with? I'd love to see a Ridley Scott Batman film. True, That'd I'd be watch cool. that. But, yeah. um, talking uh, earlier about uh, Alien doing the things that Blade Runner does, I'm going to blow your mind now. Unless you already know this fact, in which case I'm going to bore you slightly. But let's find out which. Um, according to Ridley Scott modern Ridley Scott, 21st century Ridley Scott, Alien and Blade Runner take place in the same universe. He is now convinced that, that one leads, the Blade Runner leads in, into the world of Alien. The actual on-screen evidence for this is, and again, him being the uh, a director of the DVD era, is basically hidden in DVD extras. Uh, if you trawl through the DVD extras, as I'm pretending I did instead of reading this on the internet, uh, you'll find that um, Tom Skerritt's Dallas from the first Alien film worked for the Tyrell Corporation. Uh, Tyrell mentored Peter Whelan. So those big corporations all fed into one another. And 
I wonder if, and, and Ridley said this in interviews and the commentary, uh, he, he's tried to create a connection between them in, do you remember when Roy Batty gets hit in the head with the crowbar and goes, that's the spirit? And that's what Michael Fassbender does in Alien Covenant. Yeah, right. He gets stabbed and he goes, that's the spirit. And he's trying Same line. to... Yeah, only one universe could have the phrase, that's the spirit. <laughs> in it. And it's definitive proof. Right, but, and that's interesting because it stands out to people who know it's like, oh, always quoting that other film. I had, I had either felt that or sensed that, there, that he was trying to make a continuity mm. of it. And, and sure, I mean, I sort of buy that they sort of take place in the same cinematic universe, but they don't, I, I don't see the reason they should... And it doesn't improve either film. I, th- I think it's it's. I think it's called director wankering. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I, wouldn't I it be cool if all my oeuvre was kind of connected and like? No, I don't think anyone really gives a shit except him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, well, I figured he missed a he missed a trick because Kingdom of Heaven and Robin Hood take place at the same time. Why not have the same actor play Richard the Lionheart in both? And then he gets attacked by a face hugger. <laughs> think about it. I'm down with don't that. Don't think about I it. I think it's good. I think it's all good. Right. One more thing on Alien versus Prometheus, and then I'll stop obsessing over it. <laughs> I, I hate this criticism because it is so familiar. Everybody says it about every director. It's true. I don't know what percentage of the time, but it's somewhere hovering around 50. I think he relies on CGI too much. And the reason I think that is that all the reasons we've established that his early films set up a world, and they do so through character and through you know, actor improvisation and, you know, these little sort of naturalistic moments and design and all this stuff. Prometheus, there's a lot of CGI. When you start the film, it kind of feels like these big CGI sets are the the things that are selling us on the world. And then you get to know the characters and the character says something like, I'm not here to make friends, I love rocks. And he's a geologist. So, of course, he loves rocks. It's not the greatest character work I've ever seen, and I wonder if, is it just like how much, how much, uh, he's not a writer on his films, he's, he's never credited as a writer, I don't think. No. Um, does he just, is it totally the domain of the script writer, or is it, uh, or has he just lost his way a bit where he's not pointing out the difference between... I, 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 good character work and I don't know I mean I think he I mean he's certainly in everything I've read and, and seen of him is basically he is um, uh, as clear that the script is the most important thing of any movie as Hitchcock was like the, the Hitchcock scene was the three important things to make a good movie it's the script the script the script and really Scott's the same it's all, it's, it's all about the script having a good piece of material to work with um, and I think once he has that bit of material then he is you know goes and does his thing as a visualist and a visual stylist and as a storyteller um, I, I think the CG thing is basically a product of, um, uh, as an artist, finding a tool like that. You know, when you start in the pre-CG age and then you come into a thing where you can basically do anything at any time, any size, any colour, it's an extraordinary tool. So I feel like as someone who's trying to work quickly and working with a you know, complete, you know... Once you have CG, you have a complete palette. You can pretty much do anything. As long as you've got something against a green screen, whatever else they do, you can create. I mean, he's so visual, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even bring a script onto set. So, I mean, maybe the words that the actors say aren't actually that important to him. It's yeah, all, well, you know, it's the look. Yeah. It's yeah. the look of the thing that we really remember about yeah. Ridley Scott's films. But also, but I think that I, I wouldn't discount his the great performances in his films, though. Mm. And I think he is a great performance director as well as a great visualist. But I do think that, um, you know, I don't know. I feel like the CG thing is is that I think it's a. Pro- I mean. I, let me give you two other examples. What was the main criticism of the Star Wars prequels again? What was the main 
was that they were just CG shit, whereas the first films were beautifully realised textural worlds. The first Lord of the Rings films, beautifully textural, textural realised worlds. What was wrong with the Hobbit films? CG blamange crap. Um, later Ridley Scott films, a reliance on CG. What was the first films? Um, really considered, created textural worlds. Yeah. It's, a, it's a thing that happens, and, it's, and I think it's to do with um, time and money. Um, when you have that much money and that much time to fuck around on set and just create shit, I think you just make shit up and um, give, you know, just create, create stuff. It's a lazier way of filmmaking. I think it's a very much more lazy way to do it. Whereas the original, you know, think about this. The original Alien film, which is still the best Alien film after five or six of them, it was shot with one camera, all on sound stages, with no CG, with a guy in a rubber suit. Versus the last Alien film, which was $200 million, a crew of 2,000 people, uh, 1,700 visual effects shots. I mean, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's, it's, a, it's a ten times more effective film. Mm. Do you think he's become a bit arrogant? I mean, I know we were talking at lunch that he's just a supremely confident director. He's very good at talking about what he's good at. I think if I, if I had done that, if I had that career, I'd be pretty arrogant too. <laughs> but I think that, look, I think he's, he's you know, he more joking a little bit that he basically, um, he's very funny in, in recent interviews because he's got to that point now where it's just like, you know, it's this swaggering kind of like, I do this, I've got the whole film in my head, I just create the whole thing already. And it's, it's this level of kind of mastery that's almost comical. But I do think that people, you know, there is this thing of, you know, ageing storytellers or artists where they just get into a bit of self-stimulation, um, I guess you could call it. Wanking a bit. Okay, yeah, good. No, I, I got it, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's all but, like connecting the worlds and shit. Like, it's really something that no one else really gives a shit about. Yeah. It's a bit like the Peter Jackson 48 frame thing. Mm. Hands up, he really was dying for 48 frame cinema. <laughs> well, I, I wanted and spending, to see... And he wants to spend $100 million trying to develop a technology no one gets a shit about. But I mean, the it's, first it's, version filmmakers of get to a point and they get though. to, you know, do shit like the, that. The first version of that, technology is never going to be good. At least one of them... To do a couple but more. But where's it now? Where, it's, it's seven years later. Where's the, where's the, where's the theatres and audience clamouring for 48 frames? I think what happens is when you, get, when you, make, it, when you make a billion dollars as a filmmaker, legacy becomes important and you start to do wacky shit like, you know, develop these things that no one really cares about but no one's going to tell you no because you're making a ton of money for the studios. Um, I can't wait to get to that point and do some crazy bullshit like, okay, it's all about... You know, mono sound. That's, <laughs> and they're like, why is Greg McLean making mono sound movies? No, it's, it's his legacy. I want you to come back for Hell is for Hype and it's episode 200. Like, just dressed in gold. Yes. Chains hanging yes. off your guy. Gold member. You know no vision, no yes. sound. That's yep. the future that's, of cinema. That's the new way. It's, it's, it's what I think we should really be focusing on. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit... We did talk about this uh, before with Thelma and Louise. I want to talk a little bit more about Ridley as a feminist director. Because... I, like, I love Rick Deckard. I think he's a really interesting character. But for the most part, I think he's much better at women than men. Uh, I would look at uh, Ripley in Alien, Thelma and Louise in... What's it called? Thelma and Louise. And <laughs> Michelle Williams in All the Money in the World, who are, you know, possibly the most interesting characters of his career, uh, or at least amongst them. Um, now look at uh, Tom Berenger in Someone to Watch Over You, Michael Douglas in Black Rain, Orlando Bloom in Kingdom of Heaven, Russell Crowe in A Good Year. Yes, I'm being very selective <laughs> with the films I chose, but not as selective as I know some of you think. Um, I, 
I think he is... I don't know why he's so much better at women than men, and I don't know... I mean, is it, is it true that the original version of Alien, the original script, uh, Ripley was a guy? Yes, I think so, yeah. And do we know why he changed? To- um, I think just... Pro- I, d- I honestly don't know, but I'd, my, my mind would go to the fact that, um, you know, why... Uh, majority of slasher films have females as the heroes. Yeah. It's scary for a young woman to be chased by a scary dude or a scary monster than it is for a guy. What it's do you think, Rochelle? Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of it has to do with his mother. Because, oh, yeah? um, he, he describes his mother as a really tough guy. So um, really? he had a really... His mother sort of raised him and right. his brothers and she was, you know, really tough and apparently that's right. where he gets his vision of... Of female strength from t- tough women, yeah. right? Yeah, I know. He, I know he does speak very. I've heard him speak very frontally about his, you know, because people say, "How do you have so much energy and so much thing?" And he says, "Well, I've got my mother's genes. My mother is basically, you know, hundred and something years old. She's just like go go go. She's just ferocious and you know, won't stop. And he gets his energy and a lot of his obviously his character from his mother." So maybe I mean he, I think I think he did direct a film in which somebody says, "Let me tell you about my mother," and then he shoots them. So I think there's some unresolved issues there. <laughs> right. Okay. Could be. Look, I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, I think he has made films with great female heroes, but you've also got to realise that that's you know three percent of at his hundred percent of filmography of female heroes. The rest of them are men. So proportionately. You know, he does do a lot of great male characters as well. I, I would argue, but yes, look, there's no question he's done iconically great. Um, female characters um, but I think to do that you've got to really like women you know I think you've got to be interested in and try to as a man try to not in a wanky way but in a genuine way try to you know you can't make a film like Thurman Louise as a 50 year old man as he was yeah. in a very sexist environment like Hollywood and not be self-aware enough to go entering into a dangerous space because I've got to try and tell the story that appeals I'm, I'm telling the story from a woman's point of view and it's, he's made most films from the male point of view, obviously, because he's got male characters. So that speaks to someone being fairly self-aware about what that means to do that. I, I, I do feel we need to, you know, we've praised him for the gender. I do think we need to mention that he hasn't been as great on race. He, he did receive a lot of praise and criticism for the way Muslims were depicted in Kingdom of Heaven. But when he made Exodus and was criticised for, you know... Class, uh, casting classical Egyptians, uh, Christian Bale and Joel Edgerton. Uh, so he, much spray tan in that movie. Oh, it's, it's not great. <laughs> uh, his quote was, in response to that criticism, I can't cast Muhammad so-and-so from such and such. Pretty tone deaf, uh, even if the kindest interpretation of that statement is Hollywood doesn't produce nearly enough African or Middle Eastern stars. Um, I just feel, you know, we don't need to delve into that. I just think that needs to be acknowledged if we're going to uh, look at his sort of social, social approach. Um, I th- but I think, you know, that film, I think that film was a target in the sense that, it, I don't know, it was probably a 200-and-something million-dollar film. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. We don't have a hot take on it other than, you know, the bu- budgets are financed by actors in the sense that you get the budget of the actor you can get to be the lead. Uh, and it's it's tricky, you know. You've got to, th- uh, you know, it's a tricky one. But I mean, think that film would have been suited as, you know, that film made now. There would have been a hundred million dollar film on Netflix, and you would have had a fully international, um, racial, uh, multiracial cast, and yeah. it would have, you know, because it just. I think at that particular point, then that was probably the only way to make that film and actually make it at that mm. level. I don't know. Probably true. All right. Well. A hundred episodes ago, when we launched, and I was talking about Robin Hood, I lamented at the time that uh, the latter stage of his career 
uh, wasn't great and he should hang up his spurs. I no longer believe that. You know, I haven't liked all of his films. There is one in particular I've downright loathed. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I feel like Ridley maybe was not having a particularly good year. But, <laughs> but I think rewatching. It's nothing know, to crow about that film. Sorry? Nothing to crow about. No, not exactly. <laughs> Could be any film. Um, I think, but rewatching stuff like Matchstick Men and All the Money in the World, I think he's still got a lot of interesting films left in him. And. You know, we've, I've always loved classic Ridley, but uh, studying up on his filmography has sort of sold me on later Ridley. So thank you for, uh, for picking Ridley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's an honour to be here, and it's great to geek out about one of the world's great directors. And uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, hellasforhypernets.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, find us in all the usual places. Uh, and, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. This is Paul and Sophie, together at last, here to take over the show remotely. You and Rochelle have a lie down.